Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, there's the fanfare for the common man uh, by Erin Copeland. I noticed the ABC have rediscovered it. Well, a few people on the ABC have rediscovered it when they asked for it to be played to get 2018 off the ground. So here we are in 3CR getting 2018 and the dogs played off the ground. Yeah, after a couple of weeks' break. It was an unenforced break, unfortunately, but it's one of the things about volunteer on community radio that not everything goes to um goes to plan but if you're interested um in what we were gathering over the the christmas new year's break you can go to the 3cr website at 3cr.org.au and um you can get the podcast of all the research and material that we put to our over that time but We've got a brand new start to 2018, so here we are. We've got a lot to get through in this hour on the Dogs Program because since we've been away, a lot of very interesting things have happened and need to be thought about and need to be exposed indeed here on 3CR um, Community Radio on the WWWs. But anyway, Jean, as always, has a press release. Yes, press release 731. $13 billion in state aid. That's just indirect grants. $13 billion of our taxpayers' money go into private schools, dear listener. And they represent, or the lack of accountability thereof, represents a failure in ministerial responsibility. Now, is that $13 billion since, since the turn of the century? or is that per, and per annum. Is that every year? Every so year. So last year? Last year, and the yes. year before, and probably next year, it's going to go up again. Oh, it'll be more. Thirteen yes. billion dollars. So that's thirteen with a zero 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 comma zero 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 comma zero 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 dollars. That's mind-boggling. And there's the question of accountability. Yeah. And there's the question of ministerial responsibility because that is one of the cornerstones of a democratic society. It's our money that's going into these places. Now, the Federal Minister for Education, Simon Birmingham, is between a rock and a hard place, thanks to the private schools in his party's DNA. The answer to his problems? Well, his answer to his problems is more privatisation, outsource the education enterprise and outsource ministerial responsibility. Add corruption upon corruption of basic democratic procedures and that's where we're at in Australia. Now although Birmingham's prepared to give more than 100% of funding needs to many private schools under his new Gonski 2.0 plan, the administrators of the Catholic sector as usual are still not satisfied. 
Well, they're never satisfied. Why? Because Birmingham is also requesting ever so timidly minimal accountability for the $13 billion a year windfall enjoyed by the private sector. Why? Because the private sector does not and will not adhere to principles of basic public accountability for public money. And the Australian auditor has exposed the national scandal because it is the national scandal. We certainly should have a commission of inquiry into it and Birmingham's lack of ministerial responsibility. How? There's a recent report by the Australian National Audit Office which has slammed the Commonwealth Government for failing to ensure its funding of private school systems is distributed according to need and for not knowing how private school systems distribute their funding. Well, they certainly don't. They look at individual schools once every 50 years or so. The report is a scathing indictment of a massive failure of ministerial responsibility and government administration. Yet this failure is likely to continue under Gonski 2.0, as it has for the past decade or more. Well, listeners, it's been there since the Labor Party took office in 1973, at least under Fraser back in the late 1960s, 69 to 72, you could see how much every individual private school was getting. Whatever else Fraser was when he was Minister for Education, he felt that he should be responsible for at least letting taxpayers know where the money was going, but not anymore. Now, Trevor Cobalt of Save Our Schools has been looking uh, through this report from the Auditor-General, and he has this to say. The Auditor-General's report is highly critical of the Commonwealth Government Administration of Funding for Private School Systems. In effect, the Auditor-General found that the Department of Education has failed to enforce its own legislation. It has failed to ensure that private school systems funding arrangements are publicly available and transparent. It's failed to ensure that private school systems distribute taxpayer funding to affiliated schools on a needs basis. And it has failed to ensure that progress of agreed national reform directions is adequately monitored. The report also notes that few private school systems report their administrative expenditures and that there are large variations between systems that do. Some appear to be diverting considerable funding to their own administrations. And listeners, as we know, when a Muslim school up in Nakemba did this, they were docked $19 million a year. But the Catholic system has been left uh, with no worries at all. No docking there. No attacks there. Now, these are not news criticisms. There's nothing new about this. The dogs have been saying this since 1973. But other people have been saying it in recent years too. The dogs, of course, back in the 80s and 90s were demanding that the Auditor-General started looking at the whole question. But despite all the evidence uh, you've got, there's been little change. There's been a previous Auditor-General's report back in 2008, I think it was. The Gonski Review had something to say about lack of accountability. The Victorian Auditor-General uh, recently, quite recently, uh, although he, he had to leave his job, mm. at least his 
his next in line, got out his report criticising the Catholic Education Office here in Victoria. And didn't Mr Eldler have a lot to say about that? Um, and also up in, Queen, in New South Wales, Catherine Greiner herself, a dedicated Catholic, has said quite a lot about what is not being reported for taxpayers. The Grattan Institute has also provided evidence that Catholic systems have allocated funding to schools in richer areas at the expense of those in the poorer districts. And finally, it's coming to light, and finally, it's being said, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, Ray Nielsen did all of these figures, but the only way you could get them out into the public eye was in full-page, paid-for advertisements. But now it is out in the open, so at least that is something. And the Auditor-Generals are saying this is just not good enough. However... There's been little change and private school organisations have continued to thumb their noses at legislative and regulatory requirements to be accountable for how they distribute their taxpayer funding. Most particularly, the Catholic education authorities have long refused to divulge how they distribute funds to their schools and successive Commonwealth governments and the Department of Education have been complicit in allowing them to ignore their obligations. And one should actually have a look at the background of the people who are appointed to positions in these education departments. Uh, Here in Victoria, there was a takeover back in 1983. You have a restructure and then the right people from the right schools who send their children to the right schools are moved into place in the bureaucracies. So... Uh, I think there's a word for this. Robert calls it corruption. (laughs) So the government has made it clear that there's not to be any change to the autonomy of private school systems regarding the distribution of funding to their schools. Birmingham has caved in to the Catholic education demands. And Commonwealth funding is going to continue to be paid as a lump sum for them to distribute to schools through their own arrangements. Secondly, the transparency arrangements for private school systems remain unchanged as well. Formally, they're required to ensure that their funding redistribution arrangements are publicly available and transparent. Now, this was required by the regulations under the Australian Education Act of 2013, and it's included in the amendments to the Act passed by the Parliament last June. But the requirement was not and is not reinforced as the Auditor-General's report shows. But there's no additional enforcement procedures under Gonski 2.0. Thirdly, these amendments to the Acts, which I believe were put in by um, uh, Julia Gillard, do not originally, do not provide for any additional enforcement procedures to ensure that private schools distribute funding according to need. So why have a needs policy? Why have Gonski 2.0 at all? There are no additional requirements for the department to audit the distribution of funds to schools. Now, one thing that has happened has been that they have established the National School Resourcing Board to hose things down. It's supposed to conduct reviews of the operation of the Act, particularly of arrangements and requirements relating to funding for schools. 
Now, the Department's response to the Auditor-General's criticism relies on reviews by the Board, this National School Resourcing Board, to improve transparency and public accountability of the use of taxpayer funds by private school systems. So, listeners, what are they doing? They're outsourcing, aren't they? Outsourcing again. Now, it's failed to commit to using the powers and sanctions more effectively in the future. Now, in principle, you might think this uh, National Resource um, Board is a step forward, although it's very different from the Joint Commonwealth State Territory Statutory Authority originally recommended by the Gonski Report. But there are strong reasons to doubt that it will do any better than the Department has over the last 10 years or more. As the dogs have pointed out in an earlier release, it is stacked. It's stacked with private school sympathisers. There might be one or two people on it who know something about facts and figures and finances uh, and there may be some people on it who have some kind of knowledge of public schools but it is stacked on the whole with private school operators. Now given the Department of Education with its legislative and regulatory authority has failed spectacularly to make private school organisations report on how they distribute funding to their schools, it's difficult to see how a review board which has got no significant regulatory powers, all it's really got are advisory powers, it's very difficult to see how that's going to make a difference. It's really a sop, isn't it? Moreover, the ability of this board to conduct genuinely independent reviews of private school funding arrangements is compromised by its composition. The Education Act requires that the board consist of at least six members, including members nominated by the National Catholic Education Commission and the Independent Schools Council of Australia, both of whom have now been appointed. The original Gonski review recommended against representation of sectoral interests on the board and said that its members should be appointed on merit. Now, the basic tenet of public administration is that government departments implement and administer legislation passed by Parliament. The Auditor-General's report and several other reports show that the Department of Education has failed in its key responsibility to monitor and enforce legislative and regulatory requirements for private school systems to distribute taxpayer funding according to need. And the stench from the um, garbage tin, which periodically has the lid lifted, is getting worse every time an Auditor-General lifts the lid. Now, the Department's formal response to the, um, the Auditor General's report is to wash its hands of its core responsibility rather than take stronger action because, once again, it's going to outsource its responsibility to this board. And that is a scandalous, yes, Minister, avoidance of administrative responsibility. The Commonwealth Government and the Department of Education must ensure that private school systems publish their funding models on their websites, or better still, on a separate website uh, that's conducted by the department itself. 
and the department must use its powers and sanctions to compel private school systems to provide evidence on how they distribute their taxpayer funding. It should also conduct more, much more robust annual audits on how private school systems distribute their funding to member schools and publicly report these audits. Now, that's not the dog saying that. We've been saying that for years. That's Trevor Cobald from Save Our Schools, and a lot of what he has had to say has got into the Fairfax media. So uh, this is a scandal. This is a national $13 billion scandal comparable to the $19 billion scandal of the outsourcing of the TAFE sector. Privatisation doesn't work. It undermines, unfortunately, our very basic democratic procedures of ministerial responsibility. But uh, that's enough from me. Let's have a bit of music. Thanks very much, Jean. You're listening to 3CR 855 on and AR. We are the dogs, the defenders of government schools. Let's have a little bit of music and a few messages, and we'll be back.
Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. That was a little bit of Gemsorn there, played by Winsome Evans, from her album, Sephardic Experience, uh, from the Renaissance Players, back in 1986. Um, that was a pont- which is, of course, a Macedonian tune, just to keep us going, because what I'm about to hit you with on the airwaves here on 3CR is pretty pretty heavy stuff. We're going to do an in-depth analysis about one of the things we talk a lot, great deal about here on the Dogs Program, which is separation of religion from the state here in Australia and, indeed, sometimes around the world from other English-speaking countries. Um, it, well, you have to be living under a rock to realise that there was a a nationwide um, popularity survey for same-sex marriage put out by the government at great expense. And as a result of that, uh, people who are same-sex attracted can now get married to their people that they love, which is um, to be supported in a pluralistic society or not, depending upon your religious viewpoint, but it's a thing. It's what we do here in Australia. I personally think it's great, and some of my friends are now in the process of getting married after many, many years of not being able to. Now, because of this... Because of this, there's, there's this idea that in Australia, well, Australia is becoming more of a liberal democracy, it's becoming more secularised, we're, we're moving towards a more civilised age where we're freer and freer from the, from the torments of religious belief in the public sphere. I thought we always were secular. I thought we were supposed to have separation of religion and the state. Well, we are indeed supposed in to. In principle, if not in fact. Indeed. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to discuss in a much broader context about not what's going on in Australia, but what's going on in Australia now in relation to the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world in large part is doing the opposite. And it's quite disturbing. It's, it's, it's a pattern. Um, it's not so much of a pattern to say that correlation is causation in this, but there is in fact around the world a rise in what, we, what I would call anti-secularism. Um, and I think that rise is actually coming to the fore here in Australia, and I'll explain why, just, 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 just to explain why what I'm talking about is relevant. Because once um, people who are same-sex, married, same-sex attracted can get married, the next thing the Prime Minister did was he opened up a review um, on religious freedom, because people getting married to each other, if they're same-sex attracted, um, has the potential in some people's mind to affect religious liberties and religious freedoms of other people. Um, it's a long bow to draw, it's not one that I draw, but it's one the Prime Minister thinks is relevant. So he's got a fellow called Philip Ruddock, who's an old minister, um, and he's setting up a parliamentary inquiry to review the, the status of religious freedom in Australia. Now in Australia this is interesting, because this is a new review, but there was one last year. Julie Bishop set it up. There's a report on religious freedom in Australia, sitting there waiting on a desk. No one's read it, 
but it's there, so it's already been done. It was also done by the Australian Human Rights Commission in 2009. There was a report on this exact same question. And there was another one in 2000, so going back almost two decades. So this, this whole idea of setting up an inquiry now as a reaction to same-sex marriagenesses um, <laughs> is just why? And I want to put this in context. I want to put this in the context of rising anti-secularism around the world. And I'm referring now to um, an an interesting article, which was published at the beginning of December on Contactus News, written by a fellow called Thomas Turnbull, in no relation to our Prime Minister. Thomas Turnbull, who's um, a student of international relations at the Victoria University in Wellington, not, not, not here in Melbourne. Now, the Minister in Malaysia's department in 2017, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, made a public statement in Malaysia declaring that atheism was unconstitutional and suggesting that non-religious civil society groups and any apostates, that is people who used to believe and now no longer do, um, or anyone participating in atheist events should be hunted down. This is a government minister in Malaysia. His opinion was echoed by other Malay government officials, including the fellow minister and chief of police. Continuing a disturbing trend in Malaysia, public officials in democratic societies, remember Malaysia is a democracy, declaring that non-religious minorities are dangerous and a threat to the nation. Now, this is not, in fact, an isolated incident. So we're talking about Malaysia. In recent years, also, there has been a significant rise in the number of political leaders worldwide, who have denounced humanism, they have denounced liberalism, and they have denounced secularism. It's worrying to see many nations which appear to be heading towards a liberal democracy are also coming under the spell of reactionary, religious and nationalist revivalism. This is very interesting that they're talking about uh, such things because there was an encyclical in 1870 uh, from the Pope which said the same kind of thing and it was in reaction to that that in fact state aid to religion and to religious schools was stopped in Australia. Well, that's what's going on in Malaysia but also around the world particularly concerning the violent attacks on atheists for being atheists and other non-religious peoples including rationalists in India are being attacked. Atheist bloggers in Bangladesh are being attacked and liberal activists in the Maldives are also being attacked. Humanists and secularists are easy targets for leaders of conservative communities within democracies. They can be portrayed as a threat to the state's religion and sometimes the religion is the culture and the culture is the identity. Now, the Malaysian government's willingness to go after secular groups is just one case of many. According to the 2017, this is, this is contemporary, Freedom of Thought report. So, Dean, I'm not talking about the 19th century. I'm talking about yes. now. Yes. The instances of politicians targeting secular ideas in order to appease anti-secular segments of their support bases are now increasing in frequency. In India, in particular, the election of the BJP and the Narendra Modi government in 2014 have seen the rise of Hindu nationalism. Several federal laws promoting Hindu, Hindu national identity above all other identities have been legislated by the Indian government. Crimes committed against humanist thinkers and secular activists receive limited official condemnation and they never ever in India come to trial. Similarly, officials in neighbourhood Bangladesh and the Maldives have been accused of turning a blind eye to violent attacks on academics and journalists by Islamic extremists. In April, the Maldivian blogger and secular activist Yamin Rashid confided in his friend that he suspected that his death sets he was receiving were serious and he was killed. 
two weeks later, he was hacked to death on the front steps of his home in the Maldives for being a secularist, for being um, an atheist. I think it should also be said that uh, Christians and others have been killed in India. I don't know about Malaysia, but there's, uh, there's regular pogroms in Malaysia over the, over the years. Yes, yes. Um, but they're not just for, about religion, they're also about um, race, different races, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose the point I'm making is that if you attach particular religious to the identity and the culture and you put it all together in one box, and that's your majority, uh, quite frankly, if you're going to kill an atheist for being an atheist, you're probably going to kill a Christian for being a Christian because it's the other. Of course. Now, I don't think one death is any more coupled than the other, Gene, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but for not believing in... <laughs> for not playing the game. You can be killed not just for playing the game of, 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 of religion, but you can be killed for not playing the game. Now Indonesia, and this is the big thing because these are our neighbours, has also seen a revival of anti-secularism. So now we're not talking about religion, we're talking about the idea of a secular democracy. Now in Indonesia over the last decade, following the introduction in Indonesia a secular democracy of Sharia law in the state of Aceh, where public canings are now carried out for breaching the law and the domination of Islamic courts over secular courts in that area. Even in Samoa, a small island nation in the South Pacific, the government has reinforced the status held by religion within the daily life of the nation through a declaration of Christianity's dominance in the Constitution. This is despite warnings from civil society groups that such a move would be exclusionary of Obviously, everyone is not a Christian. Samoa's Prime Minister has stated that these moves were driven by fears of foreign influence and cultural change occurring within Samoa. Whether these are genuine fears or are played up as a strategy to bolster religious votes, they are, these are typically expressions of leaders in religious nations. They claim that forces beyond their control are going to change the traditional way of life. Rather than being... Um, attached to what's written in a book or historical authenticity. What draws people to religion is its emotional intensity and psychological comforts which help explain why religious extremism and fanatical nationalism are so often intertwined in all of these examples. This has been useful for politicians and indeed dictators in (laughs) non-secular democracies in the post-Cold War era in gaining control over nation-states. It's allowed them to resist pressure from opposition groups and foreign governments who threaten the power of, indeed, various totalitarian regimes as well. Now, from the perspective of these governments, secularism, secularism is a Western ideology. It's an ideology in itself, imported and imposed by elites and revolutionaries who, by definition, are hostile to the traditions and norms of local people. Fear drives the masses into supporting officials who promise stability through traditional values such as religion. In Samoa, the government's legislated promotion of Christian values reinforces the support it maintains with local chiefs, so it's a political move, who continue to hold strong influence over the people in their tribes. In India and Bangladesh, humanists and secularists threaten to open up safe open up space, I should say, for the increased suffrage of other minority groups in each country, potentially shifting the electoral status quo. And in Malaysia, uh, with an upcoming general election, this makes the appeal of firing up conservative voters by stoking fears of unchecked atheist revolution tantalising to incumbent politicians. 
And indeed, as we know, in English-speaking countries, in the United States in particular, the Republican Party over the last 10 years, facing a shrinking voter base, utilised extreme aggressive religious rhetoric, first with the Tea Party and now with what Trump's doing. And they lace it with nationalism, with xenophobia, with bigotry, and indeed in some cases with sexism, um, which in many cases explains what's going on in um, what's going on in America today. Now, I'm talking about all these overseas places. Why am I talking about this on the Dogs Program? Why am I talking about this in this context? Because in Australia, after the liberalising of the Marriage Act to include people who, people who are same-sex attracted, the Australian government is now having public submissions to review religious freedom. And and really what is happening is that these religious groups who have set up the schools who are very concerned that they won't have control over the 13 billion plus, plus, plus funding, uh, they are more concerned about keeping their money than they really are in religious freedom. If they were interested in keeping Australian secular and having religious freedoms, they'd be looking at section 116 which, which was I'm put into our constitution in response to religious men who are more concerned with status putting in the preamble, trusting in Almighty God. That's why Section 116 was put in there in the first place. But that is what the High Court did not recognise back in 1981. If these religious people who are now putting pressure on our Australian government to retain the special discriminations they have had, their exemptions from discrimination, if they actually were really, really, really concerned about genuine religious freedom, then they would be looking at what we had and what they got rid of in 1981. That's the pity of it. Well, the transparent politicisation, the transparent mixing of religion and the state in this particular case in Australia is just blatantly obvious. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is they actually had a report on freedom of religion and belief in Australia in the year 2000. Okay? It was delivered to the both Houses of Parliament on the 27th of November. And it's there available for anyone to read. And you go, well, oh, that was 17 years ago. That was 18 years ago. That's not going to be relevant. Well, there was another one. There was another one, and it was an inquiry into, and get this, the status of the human right to freedom of religion or belief in Australia. It was commissioned on the 29th of November 2016, and the report was handed down to both Houses of Parliament on the 7th of August this year. It's there, sitting sitting on a table. It was commissioned by the Honourable Julie Bishop, and ask the committee to inquire into the report on the status of human rights of freedom and religion and belief. It's there. Now, the committee invited... This is, these are the terms of reference for that, for that report, which is sitting on Malcolm Turnbull's desk right now. While the committee is concerned with the welfare of individuals who might face discrimination and persecution on the basis of their exercise of the rights and freedom of beliefs, it's not in a position to investigate. So it was actually a general about religious freedoms. And it had contributions from both inside and outside Australia. So there's a report there. But more than that, more than that, because I can't tell you what's in that report, 
because it hasn't been released to me, it hasn't been released to the public, it's sitting there on the Prime Minister's desk. Now, a month ago, he set up another one. He hasn't read the one on his desk, so he wants another one, which has to be, by definition, if he's not going to read the one that's already there, politically motivated. But there is another report which came out in 2013. There's another report into religious freedom by the Australian Human Rights Commission. And I can tell you about that because there were over two, there were indeed 2,033 individual submissions for the Australian Human Rights Commission's report. And I can tell you what that says. And this new report is going to say exactly what the Australian Human Rights Commission wants. So I can tell you what this report's going to be. Turnbull knows, everyone knows. It's really, really simple. I'm going to share it with our listeners after I think a little bit of music and a few messages.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWW. It's good to have you back. Look, that was a little bit of Soul Jazz Orchestra, a little track called Fear and or Shock, Shock and Awe from their album Resistance. Yes, Resistance. We do a lot of that here at 3CR, resisting the mainstream media by informing our listeners about what on earth is going to happen. Now, I can see into the future. Uh, I can see into the future and I know exactly what Philip Ruddock is going to, going to find with his... Um, review into religious freedoms in Australia. Now, before well, actually, no, I'll, I'll do that, and then I'll tell you something else about this whole this whole inquiry process, which is just ridiculous. Now, I'll tell you what they can find because the Australian Human Rights Commission um, set it up in uh, mid two thousand and nine, and then the report came out in twenty thirteen. So they took three or four years over this. So they did a good job. They had over two thousand submissions. And to frame the question, they said, look, many democratic states subscribe to the idea of state neutrality or the separation of church and state. Um, Farida Fozar recently concluded that suppose the secular neutrality of the state in Australia has actually been found wanting and that the discourse of political leaders showed that the state was instead privileging members of one religious faith over others, associating the character of the nation with Christianity. Now, can you see why I'm talking about international situations? Now I'm talking about Malaysia and India and the Maldives and Samoa because within the background to this, there is the idea, and a very strong idea, that Australia is a Christian country. Now, this latter can be seen as contrary to the political secularisation of the state, which is supposed to be there and is seen to affirm the state's independence from religion. Now, regardless of what one's position on what I've just said is, it's become apparent that religion is increasingly present in the public sphere in many countries previously characterised as socially and politically secular, and that includes Australia. One of the most pressing challenges facing contemporary societies is how to handle the management of moral and religious diversity. Now, recent international flashpoints around the management of religious diversity include the wearing of headscarves and other religious symbols in the public sphere in France, um, as well as a minaret referendum in Switzerland. <laughs> as the inquiry found, some Australians, some to some, Australia is a Christian country. To others, it's a secular country, and to others, it's a multi-faith country. Those who are convinced that Australia is a Christian nation can point to the foundational presence of Christian practices within the polity to affirm, to affirm their view. That is, the parliamentary prayer, the appearance of God in the preamble of the, of the Constitution, and so on. But not, they don't ever mention Section 116 and what it really means and why it was put there. The context, and I'll just to sort of maybe perhaps put a lie to what Jean says, the context of the discussion from the Australian Human Rights Commission's point of view of freedom, religion and human rights is one of increasing religious diversity and a shift of religion from the private to the public sphere. The latter entails a more robust contribution to the development of various social policies. These are areas of public life and public policy where religion and the state intersect. There is no national bill or charter of rights in Australia to provide protections of religious and human rights, though there are state-based versions in the ACT and Victoria. Um, In the absence of national protections, religions and belief organisations, particularly outside the ACT and Victoria, turn to patchy anti-discrimination and anti-vilification laws. Now, the Constitution also speaks of freedom of belief and religious rights in Section 116, and I think it's worth quoting here. That is, quoting from the Constitution, the Commonwealth shall not make any laws for establishing any religion 
or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any public trust under the Commonwealth. So that's setting the background of what this inquiry is all about and what the words say in the Constitution. Now, what were the submissions? About one quarter of the submissions to this inquiry made comment on religious on religious's relation with the state, and the rest made no comment on the topic. The majority of submissions that discuss the relationship between religion and state argued that their own religion should have more influence on the state than it currently does or more than other religions have. About 6% of the submissions to this inquiry asserted that Australia should see itself as a secular country. I'll say that again. The majority of the submissions okay, that discussed the relationship between religion and state argued at this inquiry that their religion, their religion should have more influence on the state than it currently does or more than other religions do. Now, that is the opposite of what the Constitution says, and that's the submissions that are being put to this inquiry. Now, I, I haven't got time here to go through, the, 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 but the sheer numbers of that, that's what's going to happen with Philip Ruddock's report, because there are submission-writing engines out there, religious-based submission-writing engines, that will generate a large number of submissions saying that their religion should be privileged, just like in Malaysia. Just like in India, just like in Bangladesh, just like in Maldives, just like in Samoa, just like in America. And America is a very interesting one because their constitution is even more explicit than ours about the separation of religion and the state. So I'm telling you that's what's going to happen, Jane. And I find that absolutely disturbing. What's disturbing or most disturbing is the uh, membership of the Supreme Court of the United States and the membership of the High Court of Australia, namely uh, the people who interpret the very strong separation uh, section First Amendment of the United States Constitution or, and also or Bill of Rights, they have a Bill of Rights, and Section 116 of the Constitution in Australia. That has been the problem since they were introduced. Hmm. Now, taken together, all the reports, this indicates that there is a substantial antipathy in Australia towards secularism, apart from a small minority of 6%, who asserted Australia should see itself as a secular country. Now, something else I want to point out here, and this is, this is the fascinating thing to me, has always got me about many religious people who see themselves as a persecuted majority, but in fact uh, a privileged minority. So in broad, the submissions to this Australian Human Rights Commission review were opposed to further human rights protections for religious freedoms against legislation to prohibit religious vilification and in favour of exemptions from provision of discrimination laws in order that religions can lawfully discriminate. Of the 1,029 submissions that mentioned exemptions, 92% were in favour of religious group receiving exemptions. The overwhelming support for religious exemptions might seem surprising, however, as noted above. The majority of organisations' submissions stem from Christian religious groups 
At the same time, the majority of religious-run social services, such as education, aged care, hospitals and social welfare, are Christian-run. The large volume of expressed opinion in favour of these exemptions suggests the possibility of a coordinated campaign. The intention of such a campaign would have been to influence public policy on the matter of discrimination legislation. Exactly what happens in India, exactly what happens in the Maldives, exactly what happens in Bangladesh, and exactly what happens in Samoa. Now, there's more I can say about this, Gene, but I just think it's the international context and what's going on in Australia is not very hopeful and requires concentrated effort to deal with. It really does. You've been listening to the DOGS program, but you were going to say, Jean? Yes, I just wanted to say that the real pity of it is that for the majority of Christian groups, if they get what they want, then they also have to give Sharia law in places like Canberra and elsewhere uh, to, be, to, be, to be fair. And what they should do is actually go back to the founder of their religion, Christ said, to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they should perhaps look very carefully at what Christianity is really about. And it's certainly not about uh, being allied with the state. Oh, I'm sorry, Jean. You know that many of these people that write these submissions are people who use the word should as a thing they say but not as something they listen to. Should. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the sanctimony of humbleness. I, I, it, it confuses me too. Well, Christ would have called them whited sepulchres. I don't know. I, I can't comment on that. But one thing I can tell you about this new Philip Ruddick review is that the Australian Human Rights Commission, all the submissions were open and public, and I can quote those statistics. I can quote and tell you that that was an organised campaign because the review itself said that it was. Public submissions to this new report, new review into religious freedom, will actually be kept secret. There will be no freedom of information about who gets to say what in this context because the Prime Minister has decided that all submissions, both the number and their content, will be hidden from the public. So I won't have that information when Philip Ruddock comes out with his report. What does Philip Rudder have to say about that? Oh, though? Philip Ruddock thinks that's a bad idea, but he is a servant of the Commonwealth. He is a servant. So we'll, we'll have to watch that space very carefully. They are hiding away what is going to be said before we even find the findings. And that, to me, is deeply disturbing. Look, you've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I think this is an important issue we need to talk about. But before we finish off the program, I want to talk about something that's happy, something that's good, something interesting that's going down on a particular school down in Berwick, a state school in Berwick and a great school in Berwick. Every week on the Dogs Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Absolutely. Berwick Secondary College. Berwick Secondary College down there in Berwick. If you're down there, how you going? They're doing a great job, and I'll tell you why they're doing a great job. They are educating a large number of kids, a large number of kids, 1,600 of them down there, all in the one school. That's great. That's wonderful. But Berwick's a very interesting place. Berwick's a new place, a lot of new houses, a lot of new people, a lot of of new stuff. It's a brand-new suburb. And so as a result, various religious institutions have set up schools down there. There's some, I've, I've worked in about five schools down there, most of them religious. There's a 
brand new Catholic school on a windy hill. There's a brand new Christian school that's not Catholic, and then there's another brand new Christian school that's not Catholic, and Haleby College are down there as well. Good old Haleby College. And amongst all of that, there is Berwick Secondary College. Now, Berwick Secondary College is an interesting place. I really like it. It was actually established in 1977, way before Berwick was big, because there's old Berwick. If, if, if you know that part of Melbourne, there's the old town of Berwick. Lovely little place, um, you know, been there for about 100 or so years. And in 1977, they built Berwick College in the middle of it, a strong foundation since 1977, where all the students thrive, learn and grow each day. It's actually in the city of Casey, and it's a massive growth area. Now, they haven't built another secondary college because the state government's been very happy to farm out its, all its kids to the private schools in the area. Now, I won't mention them by name, but there's some schools that I will not go back to. Um, they have very, very deeply entrenched religious beliefs within the school populations, some of which um, I find quite disturbing. Um, I won't mention names in this case, but Berwick Secondary College is not one of them. But I do want to make a comparison. Berwick Secondary College, it's a cool school. What are, like, what are the results? What are the results? Well, tell you what, across reading and writing and spelling and grammar and punctuation, they're all on the money. Not absolutely brilliant because the range of kids that go to that school is just pretty much the range of kids you would get in a normal profile across Australia. The Ixia value of the kids there is around about 1,000, which is average, like they're just average kids. And you know what? They're doing good. Um, I'd say about 60% of the kids from, come from the poorest half of kids in Australia and 11% of the kids come from the upper quartile, like the richest kids in Australia. So it's just a mix. They've got poor kids, they've got rich kids. They've got slightly more poor kids than rich kids. But you know what? In a place like Barrett Secondary College, no one asks. It's not important. Teachers do a good job and they succeed. How much do you pay the taxpayer for each of those kids down there? Remember secondary college? In the secondary college we're looking... Gold standard, gold standard. To get a good education for a kid in a secondary college, you're spending between thirteen and fifteen thousand dollars per year per kid. Now I don't have any kids, and I'm happy to pay it to send a kid to a state school. No problem with that. How much are they spending per kid down at Berwick? Ten and a half thousand. Doing it discount rate. So that just shows that the teachers are working hard to get good results. Not brilliant results, getting good results for good kids. A kid that goes to Berwick Secondary College can dare to dream. They can hope. They want to be a this, they want to be a that, then that's what they can be. It's about at the 80% that uh, Mr Turnbull and Mr Birmingham are going to give to all the private schools around Australia, 80% of their funding. Indeed. So I just want to put that in context because round the corner from Berwick Secondary College is the Haleybury College campus. Haleybury College. What's the profile of Haleybury College? Well, the school profile of Haleybury College, how many poor kids have they got? Like how many kids in the lowest quartile of Haleybury College? 2%. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you very, very simply. If you wanted to, as a parent, cough up the money to send your kid to Haleybury College in Berwick, you'll be spending $22,000 per kid per year. And we, the taxpayers, will top that up with another eight grand of my taxpayers' money. So my money, oh, those 2% definitely be scholarship kids. The only reason they'd be there is they're scholarship kids. And they've got something special like sport or whatever. Absolutely right. Now, are they learning well? Yeah, they're they're learning well because they're getting $30,000, not $10,500 spent on them. So are they doing well at school? Certainly they are. The parents are paying for it and I'm paying for it. Jean, you're paying for it too. 
Now, just let's go back to that school problem. How many of the kids from Haley down there come from the richest half of Australia? Okay, that's ninety two percent. Ninety two percent of the kids, Haley College and Berwick are from the richest half of families in Australia. So what's happened is in Berwick, all the rich kids have been siphoned off. They've been ripped out of the state school sector and they've been put in Haleybury College. And even some of the poor kids that couldn't afford to go in there, they're, they're, they're the really smart ones, they've been ripped out of the state school system. And so all the kids who aren't stinkingly rich, aren't in the top half, are, by the way, 73% of the kids at Haleybury College are from the top quarter. Okay, so that's two-thirds. Oh, no, no, three-quarters of the kids are actually in the richest group of Australians. So down at Berwick, what's happened is all of these brand-new private schools have opened up in the last 10 years, have ripped all of the rich kids out of the state school system, and Berwick Secondary College is left with all the kids who aren't rich. And do you know what? They're doing a great job. They're doing an absolutely great job in spite of the fact that the private schools down there in Berwick are ripping them out like a cancer. Well, money perhaps doesn't buy everything. It doesn't indeed, Jean. But I just wanted to share that with the share the great story of Berwick Secondary College down there here on the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. If you want to check what we're talking about with the separation of religion in the state and schools and around the state and what Jean was saying about the scandal of school funding, you can on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, which we will be back to continue on with 2018 because the fight has to keep going because we haven't won yet. Oh, it'd be nice not to have the dogs program when we've won. Yeah, yeah tw- I think maybe 2019. Anyway, we'll see how we go. But until next week, bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead. Says Joe, but I did. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill Where working men defend their rights It's there you'll find Joe Hill It's there you'll find Joe Hill